6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck completes his teaching on the book of Philippians, chapter 1. So nevertheless, he's still imprisoned, still chained, still unheard, still uncertain in terms of what's coming, and he looks back in the verse, what happened to me served to advance the gospel. <laughs> what a perspective he had. All this he regarded as serving Christ, serving the purpose of the gospel. All the frustration, all the delays, all overshadowed the fact that it served to spread the gospel. That was his obsession, if I can use that term. So he continues, so that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palaces and in all other places. Now here we have a translational issue. It says the palace in your King James in similar terms in some of the other translations. The word is actually praetorian. And uh, it originally has been assumed to refer to a building. However, since the 17th century, many ancient manuscripts have uncovered, uh, been uncovered that mention the Roman praetorium and in none of these manuscripts does the word ever refer to a palace or a building of any kind, interestingly enough. In all of them, it refers to people, specifically the Praetorian Guard, the official bodyguard of the emperor, which also took charge of all imperial prisoners. And we're going to discover that uh, that had some interesting fruit. The very soldiers that guarded him were brought to hear the gospel. It's evident that great numbers of them believed. We'll find that when we get to chapter 4, it makes reference to that. <laughs> Can you imagine being chained to Paul for a full shift? <laughs> Many of them, you know, I always point out, the reason they were chained to him was so they couldn't get away. <laughs> and I can just imagine a Praetorian being chained to Paul for a full shift. <laughs> had to have an impact. Anyway, moving on, verse 14. And many of the brethren in the Lord, waxing confident by my bonds, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. See, he sees his own life, his own experience as being an encouragement to all those others. The others were not only encouraged, they went from fear to boldness as a result of Paul's example. He says, some indeed preach Christ even of envy and strife, and some also of goodwill. <laughs> You know, there's hardly a problem in the church today that they didn't have in the first century, that uh, there are people preaching, and they're preaching out of the wrong motives, but Paul would celebrate them because at least Christ is being preached. Uh, Corinth being one of the most conspicuous examples, but Rome too. And uh, the one preached Christ of contention, he says in verse 16, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my bonds. Now, they're actually preaching, but in such a way of, of, uh, of envy and, and com competition, if you will. The one preach Christ of contention. And so uh, they speak out of envy and strife and contention. These were Christians who were trying to get Paul into trouble with their preaching. Can you imagine that? 
Yes, we can. We find that kind of thing occurring uh, in our own day, and we shouldn't be surprised. But it's interesting how Paul celebrates that at least Christ is being preached. And, uh, you know, there, the, it's interesting how the conduct of Christians is such a barrier to many. They ask Gandhi, Mahatma Gandhi, what, what is the big, biggest barrier to Christianity in India? His answer was Christians. Interesting, provocative response, actually. We often hear that Christians are well known for arranging their firing squads in circles. We spend more time, we often forget who the enemy really is. Anyway, Paul alludes to this friction in, his, in other books. He indicated most of the Christians had deserted him. Now this is interesting. It is not generally recognized how poorly Paul had been received in Rome. We always assume the best. No, it was really quite a different experience. The pastors there were jealous of Paul. They neglected him for that reason. When the pastors forgot their duty, the people followed suit. Paul was the forgotten guy in Rome. In chains, yes. And he had a, a very few that were faithful. But Paul was almost forgotten. And this may shock you to discover some things here. The proof of this, by the way, lies in the fact that Onesiphorus, who was a visitor in Rome, he's mentioned that Philemon is the subject of the letter to Philemon, tried hard to find Paul for some years. But no one could tell him where Paul was. And of course, he finally found Paul. But it was a search. And it was, a, it was his diligence that caused it to happen. It was, a, it was only by a diligent search that he found him. That's all in 2 Timothy 1, by the way. I want to tell you about an unknown scandal. This just shocked me as I became acquainted myself. Paul here is reporting that they preach Christ of unworthy motives. Okay, jealousy, strife, and partisanship. No surprise. But did you realize that Paul very likely lost his life as a result of the trouble caused by the troublemaking Christians in Rome? That amazed me to find that out. The information that exists from the early church by the, about the events that led up to the death of Paul points to this conclusion. Envy led some Christians to denounce Paul, and as a result of their denunciation, Paul and perhaps others also were presumably executed under Nero. Three points, key points. We, first, that we noted that when Onesiphorus arrived in Rome, no one seemed to be able to tell him where Paul was. That was in 2 Timothy 1. deals with that. Then Paul began to make converts through the Praetorian Guard. His views spread through Rome, provoking jealousy among the leaders of the Roman congregation. And Paul alludes that both here in this letter and in his second letter to Timothy, by the way. Second point. Suetonius, a Roman historian who wrote the lives of the Caesars, tells us that, quote, since the Jews constantly made disturbances at the instigation of Croesus, that was his term for Christ, uh, thinking that Christ was the ringleader, Claudius expelled them from Rome. This expulsion of both Christians and Jews is alluded to in Acts 18. Third point, a Roman Christian by the name of Clement wrote a letter to the believers in Corinth about 90 AD, and in chapters 3 to 6 in his letter, he warns the Corinthians about the bad effects of jealousy which had resulted in suffering and death among God's people. He alludes to seven examples from the Old Testament and seven from more recent times, including Paul in 1 Clement 5. Well, we shouldn't be surprised. 
Jesus warned his disciples that they would betray one another. And that and in Matthew 24, verse 10. And so let's continue here with this Philippian letter. We're down to verse 17. But the other of love, knowing that I am set for the defense of the gospel. But what then? Notwithstanding, every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and therein do I rejoice, yea, and will rejoice. See, Paul's mind was filled with the Christ. That's mentioned 17 times in this chapter alone. And even the false teachers serve. Apparently so. God can use tainted vessels, and that should be an encourage each one of us. Yes, you and I can be on the team. We're not perfect. But let's go on here. Verse 19. For I know that this shall turn to my salvation through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and my hope, that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. And there's a word here that deserves some discussion. He says, I, nothing shall I be ashamed. In the Bible, that word really always refers to disappointment in, in the biblical usage. Every human is stained, everything human is stained with disappointment. Romans 5.5, 5, hope maketh not ashamed. And in Isaiah 49, verse 23, it says, Thou shalt know that I am the Lord, for they shall not be ashamed that wait for me. And that's quoted twice in the book of Romans from Isaiah 49. God does not disappoint us. <clears throat> Three verses all contain ashamed in the sense of disappointment. Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also the Greek. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Romans 1, 16. And that gospel, by the way, is defined in the first four verses of 1 Corinthians 15, which is guaranteed to be on your final exam. <laughs> Second, for the, for the which cause I also suffer these things, nevertheless, he says to second Tim, in the second letter to Timothy, nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and that am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. We've quoted that before. See, my deposit is safe with him. And then the third one, according to my, in Philippians chapter 1, 20, the one we just had, according to my earnest expectation and my hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. So the term ashamed there is used in a different sense that we normally think of it. But what scope do these things? Paul knew that Christ would ultimately be exalted and rule in power until he crushed all enemies beneath his feet. And boy, is that going to be hammered when we get to this, the second chapter of this epistle with this fabulous passage called the kenosis. And we're getting ahead of ourselves. Paul also knew that God's determination to exalt his Son also extends to those who are united to him by faith. Yes, even you and me. And that leads, of course, to, to uh, the fact that Paul recognized Christ would be magnified in him whether he lived or died. How interesting. Paul's confidence is that Christ would be magnified no matter what happened to him, living or dead. And that's going to be emphasized as we move forward here. See, we tend to move, live in two worlds. We think of the sacred and the secular. There is no such thing. Jesus knew that no such, there were no such divisions in his life. And uh, 
John 8, he says, I do always what pleases him. And that's the way it was with Paul, too. He knew where his priorities were. In 1 Corinthians 10, he says, Whether therefore ye eat or drink or whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God. Boy, what a yardstick on all his decisions. Romans 12 is, is the great one. He says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. How do you do that? By 2 Corinthians 10.5, this is a precious verse. I really learned how to apply this from my wife. Casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Wow. With that approach, you can conquer anything in the Spirit. Bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. You nip it when it starts. The first time you get a wayward thought, you nail it then, right at the beginning. Bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Wow. That's, uh, that, that, uh, I, I, uh, I really learned to appreciate that from my bride, who has really written much about that, as you probably know. Let's move on here. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. What is Christianity? It's a person. Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That eclipses every other thing in your life. Everything. These two verses, one from the early days of his ministry, and one from the end of his ministry summarized the living essence of Paul's faith. The very heartthrob of his life was Christ. Every thought, everything was Christ. He says, but if I live in the flesh, this is the fruit of my labor. Yet what, sh what I shall choose, I wot not. See, unfortunately, death holds no benefits for unbelievers. Subconsciously, every non-Christian knows this that death looms large as a dreadful enemy. Francis Bacon made an interesting remark. He says, men fear death as children fear the dark. People know that in death, a person must meet his maker. How grateful Christians can be that Christ came to free us from such terrors, indeed. Hebrews 2. Again, Paul, Hebrews 2, 14 to 15. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that hath the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. You and I are not, if we're in Christ. But Paul continues with Philippians 1:23, another one of these uh, incomparable verses. Paul says, For I am in a strait betwixt two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Wow. Now the word depart here is a strange word. Analuo. It actually means technically to break camp. But it's the word, in English we get the word analysis, 
but it carries the idea of leaving something permanently behind. Where does that come from? When the Roman army reached the end of a long march, they made camp, and this was a very elaborate affair. An adequate rectangle was spaced off, and the entire encampment was secured by a moat and a rampart, often to the height of 10 or 12 feet. The top was reinforced and the corners were strengthened. When the camp was struck, the soldiers moved on, leaving behind the fortifications like a discarded chrysalis. Mute testimony to the fact that they had been there. <laughs> so that's where that, so this is what we need to do. We need to leave behind all that is not useful. All the sin, all the pain, all the care, all the anguish of this world. For the Christian, death is not a gain of the worst in life. It's an improvement on the best. But see, he says, I'm a trick, I'm a trick between two to, die, to, to depart me with Christ, which is far better. But then he hit verse 24. Nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. In other words, he's sticking around for your benefit, Philippi. <laughs> and having this confidence, I know that I shall abide and continue with you all for your furtherance and joy of faith, that your rejoicing may be more abundant in Jesus Christ for me by my coming to you again. Paul's whole existence is focused on them. He'd rather be gone and with Christ, but for their sakes, he's willing to be with them. That's incredible. Now, we don't have any clear record whether this return to see them was fulfilled, but there are early church traditions that it was. We know that he was released from his first imprisonment and was allowed to go about in freedom for several years before being again apprehended and martyred for the sake of Christ, following him even unto death. And it's, it's well presumed that during those two years he would have made a point of revisiting the Philippians. Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs that ye stand fast in one spirit, with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. Well, we can't let this go by. Uh, obviously, privilege implies responsibility, but I want to talk about this one word, that only let your conversation be as it becomes. I think most of you realize that that term in the King James period meant something more than it does today. Today, the word really just means our, conver our, our discussion, our conversation. The word there is actually far more pregnant than, than you would gather even from the translation. The conversation, that term was employed by our ancestors as a word of far wider scope than is generally suggested today. It meant not only talk, but included our entire behavior, our whole manner of life. The translation difficulties even go deeper than that. In the NIV, they use six words to translate that one word. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy is, what, is the way they translate it there. And the, in the Greek, the word is polotomai, which is based on the noun for the city, polis, meaning city. It actually refers to citizenship. In the classical age, the polis was the largest political unit in the Greek, that the Greek belonged to it as, a, as we might belong to a country. And in his culture, it was the biggest thing in his life. The verb form of that noun means to conduct, one, conduct oneself worthily as a citizen of a city-state. 
And we got a taste of this when we went through Acts 16. The whole idea that they had this special privilege from Augustus that they were treated as if they were residents of Italy. And that, that meant a lot to them. They, were re they really had that identity. And it's interesting how, how, how uh, that identity is, we almost become victims to that identity ourselves in many ways. And so uh, remember that in, in Acts 16 when we went through it last time, verse 20, 21. And he brought them to the magistrate saying, these men being Jews do exceedingly trouble our city and teach customs which are not lawful for us to receive, neither to observe being Romans. See, they, they appeal to their identity with Romans as, uh, as, as that which they were aspiring to be worthy of. Now, they were wrong, but you get the, the point is they understand what the, the word was. Now, our citizenship, of course, is in heaven. And that's what he will emphasize in the Philippian letter when he gets to chapter 3, where he says, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, because our citizenship is in heaven. And uh, so we are to be a citizen of heaven like Abraham. Remember Hebrews chapter 11, verses 9 to 20, it, uh, he says, By faith he sojourned in the land of promise as in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles, or his tents, with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he looked for, he looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Again, we see the citizenship model, citizenship model not only in Hebrews, but of course it, it pervades the whole Philippian letter because of their uh, uh, experience there in the culture there in Philippi. And, uh, but the emphasis here is, in any case, to stand together with one mind and one purpose, is what he's really getting at here. See, the Christians of Philippi knew what it meant to stand fast as Romans at the frontier of the Roman world. And, but some Christians today do just the opposite. They wash their hands of all involvement in the community and national life. No one looked more earnestly for the Lord's quick return than Paul. But it was preeminently Paul who set with all enthusiasm he could muster to claim the world for Christ. And uh, so must we. We have to do the same thing. We must carry the ba battle for human souls beyond the confines of our churches, our universities, our law courts, corporate boardrooms, and of course the marketplace. That's our challenge. It's an it's a active calling not a passive calling. And uh, I like what E. Stanley Jones says. The early Christians did not say in dismay, look what the world has come to, <laughs> but they said in delight, look what has come to the world. And that was their, <laughs> I like that there. That's cool. So Philippians, Paul continues here in Philippians verse 28, and in nothing terrified by your adversaries, which is to them an evident token of perdition, but to you of salvation and that of God. The battle is joined and there will be persecution, he's warning them. And uh, the word perdition, these unholy, unholy adversaries, uh, read their own doom in the happy fellowship of the saints of God and see it in the proof of the Lord's last words where he says in Matthew 16, Upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That's often misunderstood. It's not the assembly of God that is as a city besieged. No, no, no. Rather, it's hell or Hades, the realm of darkness that is besieged by the forces of light. It is the forces of light who are carrying an offensive warfare, not a defensive warfare. And it's to them that the promise is given that the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. This is the perdition that was spoken of in that verse. Okay, wrapping it up here then. For unto you it is given 
in the behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which he saw in me, now here to be in me. If you squeeze an orange, you expect to get orange juice. If you squeeze a lemon, you should get lemon juice. But if you squeeze a Christian, you should get Christ. <laughs> I like that. Well, that's the first chapter. That's just the warm-up. Be ready for the big one coming, chapter 2. And uh, I want you for the next session, study carefully chapter 2 of, uh, of this epistle. And as you do so, I want you to think about remedies for yourselves, for ourselves. We need to develop a low opinion of ourselves. We need to have a better opinion of others and we need to possess the mind of Christ. And we need to really understand the mind of Christ, not just in, in, in uh, conceptual terms, but in practical terms. And Paul's going to deal with that intensely. And so we're going to be coming into a few verses in chapter 2, 5 to 11, that are known as the kenosis. And uh, you need to Explore those and discover what that really means. It's one of the most precious, to many, it's the most precious passage in the New Testament. Philippians 2. And we're going to take, take that on next time. And let's have a closing word of prayer. Father, we thank you for the commitment of Paul. We thank you for his affection. We thank you, Father, for his example. We do pray, Father, you would help us to understand and appreciate and appropriate to ourselves the lessons of his life and his commitment to you. We pray, Father, that you would indeed help each of us to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our coming King, that we each might be more effective stewards of the opportunities that you lay before us, that in all these things we might be more pleasing in your sight as we commit ourselves without any reservations whatsoever into your hands in the name of Yeshua, our coming King our blessed Savior, indeed. Amen. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Messler, teaching through the book of Philippians. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on 1-800-KHOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.